Well, last week, I was thinking after I taught last week, Judges chapter three, I was thinking, man, for any visitors who are here, that was a rough passage to work through. And Judges four isn't much better. Um, Not much better at all. But so we're going to work through Judges chapter four and chapter five this morning. So uh, starting in chapter four, verse one. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ahud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabed, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagiam. So here's the scene. Remember last week we had this very graphic story of Ehud taking his 18-inch dagger and stabbing into Eglon's belly. And remember Eglon, he was so big, the, the fat covered the sword, and Ehud couldn't pull it back out. And old Eglon, he soiled himself. And that's kind of where the story ends there. And Ehud, he becomes the judge for 80 years. He brings freedom to the people. And things are going good in Israel for a while. But eventually, Ehud dies. And as we see so often in Judges, after the judge dies, the people revert. The people regress. The people go back to their old ways. The people fall back into idolatry, going after Molech and Baal and the Ashtoreths. And so, once again, we find the people, they, they stop from trusting in the Lord. They stop from serving God. And once again, the Lord turns them over to a, to a foreign power in order that they might be disciplined. Now, it's interesting, go back to Exodus. The people are at Mount Sinai, I remember. And the Lord, he gives them the law. The Lord gives them the covenants. And remember, the Lord tells them, you know, look, it, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. And if you disobey me, you will be cursed. And really, what we see in Judges is much of those promises coming true. We find the people, when they obey God, they're blessed by God. When the people walk in obedience, God blesses them and he's with them. But when the people walk in disobedience, they begin to experience the curses of God. So verse two tells us, that King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, was the one whom the Lord used. He was a military leader, and he had this commander by the name of Sisera, who led the battle against the people of Israel. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he, Jabin, had 700 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So like we've seen in previous times here, the Lord, he turns the people over to a foreign power, he punishes them for their sins, and eventually the people get tired of of living under bondage. They get tired of this oppression that they're living under. And so after 20 years of living under this, this cruel bondage and this oppression, finally the people have enough. And they cry out to the Lord. And this is where we get into the meat of the story. 
As I said this morning, we'll be looking at chapter 4 and at chapter 5 simultaneously, really. Chapter 4, they give us the the events that take place, and most of chapter 5 is a song that Deborah writes singing about what happened in chapter 4. So we're going to kind of, for the most part, combine the two chapters. And again, this week, while not as graphic as last week, it's a little bit gory if you're familiar with chapter four here. So we're going to start. We note that Jabin, and by default, Sisera, his commander, had 900 iron chariots. Now, in our day and age, that doesn't mean a lot, right? A chariot, all right? It's a two-wheeled wagon pulled by a horse, right? I mean, you might see it in a museum or, you know, if you watch Gladiator there in the uh, arena scene or whatever, but, you know, it's not very impactful to us to read that this king had 900 chariots. But if you're a student of history at all, you understand the significance here. If you're a student of, of warfare at all. Remember back in World War I. World War I, they called it, you know, the Great War. The war to win all wars. And it wasn't the war to end all wars, but it was supposed to be. But World War I was significant from all the wars before it. Because in World War I, they started using tanks. Scott's excited there. <laughs> and they started using airplanes. And the use of tanks and airplanes, it completely changed warfare. Right? When, when, when people started using tanks and planes, people had to completely rethink all of their strategies concerning war, right? War strategy had to be completely reinvented. Now, chariots were very much the same thing in the ancient world. Chariots were the elite tanks, right? They're the Abrams tanks of the ancient Near East, right? When, when, when enemies would roll up in their iron chariots, and there was just a line of soldiers in front of them, they could just plow right through them. Right? One, one charioteer could take out many, many frontline soldiers. They could plow through, and they could break up the enemy lines. And so that this King Jabin had 900 of them, that would have been absolutely terrifying to the Israelites, as we'll see. That would have been a very formidable force in that region. And also remember that for the most part, particularly in Israel, when it talks about the soldiers, we're going to see in a little while that this guy Barak gathers up 10,000 soldiers. Don't think that he calls out 10 regiments from the military. For the most part, these soldiers were not a professional fighting force. They were farmers. They were carpenters. They were stonemasons. Right? And oftentimes these soldiers, when they went to war, you know what they took? They took the implements of their trade. Right? We saw Shamgar last week. He went to war with what? An ox goat, a stick, because he was a farmer. Oftentimes they would take their sticks and their shovels and their rakes because that's all they had. And so we find this Sisera with his troops and his chariots. This would have been terrifying this would have been an overwhelming force. Verse four. Now Deborah, a prophetess, 
the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel and the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came to her for judgment. Now there's a couple interesting things to note in this verse, and we could probably spend quite a bit of time here if we wanted to. First, remember I mentioned earlier in an introduction to Judges that the word judges here, when we're talking with the judges, it usually doesn't mean a judge in the judicial sense, right? This wasn't a judge who was holding court. This term judges, it was more of a, a military word. It means more of a, a deliverer. However, Deborah was actually a judge in the more judicial sense of the word. In those days, leaders of the town often would, would sit by the city gates or in some other area, and they would deal with, with legal matters, and they would pass judgment. Somebody comes and says, look, my neighbor, his oxen trampled three of my goats. Well, did he, you eat the goats afterwards? Yes, well, then he owes you 72 shekels and a partridge or whatever it is. I don't know, right? But, but that's kind of the, the role that they would take. Deborah was one of those sort of judges, and she was also a judge in the book of Judges since. She became a, a military leader, a deliverer. Now, here's where we could spend considerable time discussing the role of women in ministry. And I realize that wherever I go with this passage, with this, this um, idea, somebody's feathers are going to be ruffled. Somebody's going to be offended. And generally, I'm an equal opportunities offender. I try to hit everybody. We'll see what we can do this morning. Right? On one end of this argument, there are some who would say that women have no role in ministry. Zero. Women in ministry are mutually exclusive. Right? They would say that ministry is strictly a male profession. And most people who hold this position would also say that, that women shouldn't be in political leadership. They shouldn't be in business leadership, right? They shouldn't be in any of those kind of arenas. Yeah, mostly women belong barefoot in the kitchen, pregnant, cooking meatloaf. And that, that's kind of the position that a lot of people take. On the other side of the argument, sort of the egalitarian position is that women can serve in any role in ministry that men can serve in. And that there's no distinction whatsoever. Well, what do we find in scripture? As is often the case, the truth lies somewhere in the middle, right? Here we see that Deborah was definitely clearly called by God. And we will see that she was definitely used by God in a mighty, powerful way. We also know here that she was a prophetess, that she held a position in ministry. And we see this throughout scripture, right? Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We find women who are involved in ministry, who are prophetesses. We saw Miriam, 
Moses' sister, this woman named Hulda, Anna in the New Testament. Remember, Philip had four daughters in the book of Acts who were prophetesses. So clearly there is a, there's a place for women to serve in ministry. There's a role. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make my position clear, and then I'm going to attempt to defend it from Scripture. In my understanding of Scripture, there are two positions where men are supposed to take the leadership mantle. Right? And, and these two positions have nothing to do with female inferiority or lack of ability. It has to do with God's ordained order. Men, it's taught in scripture, are to lead in the home and men are to lead in the church. It seems very clear to me that that's what scripture teaches. And it also teaches that women, while can hold positions of leadership, that women are not supposed to be in spiritual leadership over men in the church. And the same way within the family, husbands are the head of the home. They're to love and to protect their wives and families. In fact, Paul talks about that a little bit in Ephesians chapter five. In verse 23, he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. Paul tells the husbands that they should love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for us. He laid down his life for us. Right? And that's what we're supposed to do as husbands. We're supposed to, to lay down our lives in service to our wives, to our families. And then Paul says women are su supposed to submit to that leadership. They're supposed to submit to the loving leadership of their husbands. And again, I want to be clear. This doesn't mean that wives are supposed to be doormats, that they should allow themselves to be abused and walked all over, right? That's not what scripture is teaching. And another thing I want to point out the Bible doesn't say that women are supposed to be in of submission to men, right? Ladies, anytime some dude walks up to you and tells you something, you're under no moral obligation to obey him. Just so we're clear there, right? I don't think any of you guys thought that, but just in case, right? This is speaking of husbands and their relationship to their wives, not men in general and their relationships with women in general. Right? And this, this idea, as I said, that, that women can't hold positions of leadership in the political arena, that women shouldn't be CEOs, that women can't be professors or teachers or whatever, right? That's, that's not in the Bible. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. In fact, that's a, a gross injustice to the teaching of scripture, 
right? And anyone who uses the Bible to support those kind of ideologies either doesn't know what the Bible says or is purposely twisting the scriptures to advance their own agenda. But I do want to look at a couple verses as to what the Bible says about this. First, it says this in 1 Corinthians. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But look at verse 5. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since this is the same as if her head were shaven. I hope that brought you clarity. <laughs> Let's move on. I think we settled that. Right? That doesn't seem like it helped at all, does it? A little hairdressing advice, maybe, but I don't know. But actually, that does help us if we break it down a little bit. First of all, it shows us that there is a place for women in ministry, right? He's talking about prophecy, and he says there is a place for women to prophesy in the church. He says that there are instances where women are called to minister on behalf of the Lord. Second, Paul says, when a woman ministers, she needs to do it with her head covered. What? Does a little bonnet qualify women to be in ministry? I mean, I guess Little House on the Prairie makes a little more sense now. But what's Paul talking about? Well, in that culture, and the culture that Paul was writing to at the time, women wearing head coverings was a sign that they were married. It was a sign that they were living in submission to their husband's leadership. And so that's what he's talking about there. What he's saying is that when, when a woman is called to some degree of ministry, she needs to do so under the umbrella of her husband's spiritual authority. Now, I understand that this, I fully understand, that this flies very much in the face of our culture today. You know, I can see people shifting around a little. Where's he going with this? I know I might not be here next week. Right? This is tough stuff. And this, this is the model that's laid out in Scripture. And I'm not going to, to say that I fully understand it. But I'm also not going to apologize for what the Lord says, for what the Lord decrees. I'm just, I'm telling you what he says and that's it. Well, let me touch on a couple more verses for clarity. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, and you ladies will love this, I'm sure, she is to remain quiet. Now, let me, I'm going to unpack this in a second. Don't get, too, don't get too bunched up yet. Clearly, we see that women have a place in ministry even sometimes in teaching ministry, but not a place of spiritual authority over men. Now look, it says that wives should remain silent. I know some of you guys are like, yes, I'm going to write that down. I'm going to put it on my mirror. I'm going to memorize. I don't do a lot of Bible memory, but I'm going to memorize that one. Well, 
sorry. There was a cultural thing going on here. And Paul talks about this a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 34. He says, women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Well, again, you read that and you're like, man, that's, that's t- Anna, be quiet. You're in church. They just, shh, until you get home. Then you can ask Mike. All right? Let, let, let me explain this. And this is a good example. Right? I look around and I see Anna and Mike. They're all snuggled up together, so cute. And there's Jeff and Sophia. I see all, oh, look it. There's Jessica and Kyle and Julie and Scott all snuggled together. That's not how it was in the ancient world. In those days, and in many places today even, women would sit on one side of the church and men would sit on the other side of the church. And what would happen is if the pastor's teaching and, and somebody didn't understand it, if the lady didn't understand it, she would yell out, hey, honey, what does he mean by that? Do you agree with that? And so there was this, all this commotion going on in the churches, causing disruption in the churches. And so what Paul is saying here is, ladies, stop being, and it's not only the ladies, because he kind of addresses it in other places, the guys too. But he says, stop being a distraction in the church. Learn quietly. If you have a question, don't just yell it out. And I would advise you guys the same thing. If you guys have a question about what I'm teaching, ask me afterwards. Don't just yell it out in the middle of the sermon. Right? That's what Paul is saying. And I don't think that Paul is saying that women cannot speak in church because the verses we just looked at indicate that when women do speak in church, they need to be under the umbrella of their husband's spiritual authority. But something else that's interesting I want to point out here. Paul is encouraging the ladies to learn what the scripture says, right? To ask questions. Now this, that might not mean much to us, but this was a major break from Jewish tradition and from Jewish customs. There was a well-known Jewish saying the rabbis would say, it's better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. Isn't that crazy? And Paul says, no. He says that women should learn the Bible just like men. That women are on equal footing before the Lord as men are. And that's nonsense, some of the things that, that we hear people saying. All Paul is saying here is, don't be distracting when you ask your questions. So where do we land as a Calvary? We're referred to as complementarians. You ever heard the expression, oh, they really complement each other, right? My, my son and his fiance, they really complement each other. They're both the biggest nerds you could ever imagine. They play lightsabers together and go to Comic-Con and they, 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 they really complement each other. And it's sort of the same kind of theme theologically, right? What complementarian means is this. It means that, that they're, I don't want to use that expression, never mind. Um, it means that women have different complementary roles to men. 
right? The roles that women fulfill and the roles that men fulfill, they complement each other in the church and in the home, right? And, and practically, it means that women in the church can teach other women. You know, they can have roles as, as, as worship leaders. They can fulfill a variety of roles, but not be in spiritual authority over men. Now, many churches, many Christians will disagree with this, and well, whatever, it's your right to disagree. But to me, it does seem that this is the clear teaching of Scripture. So anyway, Deborah was a prophetess, and she was raised up to be a judge before Israel, and she was raised up to help set the people of Israel free from the bondage they were under. Verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of... Abinayim from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 of the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. So Deborah, she sends for this guy, Barak, the son of Abinayim. And she says, Barak, hasn't the Lord given you a command? Aren't you supposed to gather your troops and go over to Mount Tabor? He says, what are you, why are you, what are you still doing here? Apparently, Barak had heard from the Lord. Barak had a clear imperative from God. But as we'll see, fear was holding him back initially. He knew that he was commanded. He knew that he was called but he was being held back because he was looking at the circumstances. He was looking at the situation rather than looking at the Lord. Right? He looks out there. He sees these 900 chariots. And he was led by fear, not by faith. And so Deborah, she goes out and she, she gives him a little kick in the pants. She says, listen, Barak. You need to go out there, gather up your 10,000 men from the tribe of Naphtali and Zebulun. And then she says this in verse 7. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. And this is the Lord speaking, not Deborah, as we're looking at that. And... Um, and so Deborah says, the Lord said, I am going to draw out Sisera. I'm going to lure him out by the Kishon River. I'm going to bring him out. I'm going to bring his shiny little chariots out. I'm going to bring all of his troops out. And I am going to give you the victory there. And Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, surely I will go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Again, Barak here very courageously tells her, will you go with me? If you don't go, I'm not going. And Deborah says, okay, I'll go. But here's the deal, bro. The path you're taking, she said, you aren't going to get any glory out of this. Somebody else is going to get it. He says, it will be a woman who deals with Sisera, not you. Now, this isn't saying that Barak won't get the glory because a woman was involved. He's not saying, 
Oh, you had to have a lady help you, so there's no glory in it for you now. She's saying it descriptively. She's saying, look, there's going to be a lady who's going to get the glory for killing him instead of you. You see what I mean? There's a difference there. Deborah is simply saying that the lady over there is going to get the honor because she's the one who had to deal with Sisera. Not saying, oh, because there's a lady involved, you don't get any honor. Then Deborah gets up and goes with Barak. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Canaanite had separated from the Canaanites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. So Barak here, he, he gets his warriors all ready. He calls them up for battle. And at the same time, we encounter this fella, Heber. And apparently Heber was a Kenite. And these Kenites, they were descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And so Heber, it says that he separated himself from the Kenites. And that might, Heber might be a nickname because Heber means to cross over. Right? And that's what he does. We find that he, that he kind of switches sides. He switches his alliances to the Hebrew people. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinam, had gone up to Mount Tamor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagayim to the river Kishon. So see the situation here. All of a sudden... Sisera, he hears that the Israelites are amassing, they're gathering for war. So he says, okay. He calls out all of his guys. He, you know, he blows the trumpet. He sounds the alarm. He gets his guys ready. They pull the chariots out of the garage. They, they saddle them up and they head over to the riverside to get ready to fight. And Deborah said to Barak, up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Deborah tells Barak, the Lord has given you the victory. The Lord is going before you. You've got this, Barak. When with that encouragement, we find Barak going down from Mount Tabor. Now I want to pause there for one second. It says he went down from Mount Tabor. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us, right? But within the confines of the text, that's very meaningful. And I'll tell you why. Scott, you were a, you were a tanker, right? In the military. Do tanks perform better on flat level ground or crawling up a hillside over rough terrain? Both, but what's better? I knew he was going to be difficult. I don't know why I asked him. I should have just made the statement. Flat level ground. Just so with chariots, but even more. Right? Chariots lose their advantage on uneven ground. Chariots lose their advantage going up hills in the mountains. Barak had the advantage in the highlands, and the chariots had the advantage in the lowlands. So by Barak taking the battle to Sisera in the lowlands, he's essentially saying, look, 
I trust in the Lord for the victory. If the Lord can give me victory up in the mountains, he can just as easily give me the victory down there. And I like this heart here. Remember Psalm chapter 20, verse six and seven? It says, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy right hand. And then you guys probably all know verse seven. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David says, look, some military leaders, they trust in their horses for victory. Some military leaders, they trust in their chariots, right? In their, in their military might. David says, not us. We trust in the Lord to save us. And Barak here, he's sort of, <clears throat> sort of saying the, the inverse of this, right? He says, look, we're not going to fear the chariots of the enemy. We're not going to fear the horses of the enemy. We're not going to fear their, their military might and their military prowess. We're going to trust that as we go down to the battle, that the Lord is going to go down with us. And look at verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagayim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. And chapter 5 verse 18 says, Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to the death. Nephtali too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought. Then, the kings of, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. For the heavens and stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. Now, we see in this passage that the Lord routes Sisera. And in chapter 4, it doesn't give us a lot of context. It doesn't tell us what happened. It just says that Barak got the victory, that the whole army fell by the sword. Right? But chapter 5 and verse 21, it gives us a little more clarity. It says, The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. March on, my soul with might. Remember, this is kind of, this is kind of uh, prose poetry here that Deborah's writing. But apparently, what happened is this Sisera, he goes by, down by the, the brook Kidron, the Kidron River. He gets his chariots all aligned out on this flat level ground in this, this great plain, and they're getting ready for battle. And we don't know exactly what happened, whether it started to rain or the river rose, but something happened and, and the ground got wet. And what happens to wagons and chariots when the ground gets wet? They sink, they get stuck. And so Sisera's advantage ended up becoming a disadvantage. And Sisera, he ends up abandoning his chariot and he runs away into the hills. Verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabe and the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned inside to, the, to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. 
And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand by the opening of the tent. If any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. So you see the scene here. Sisera, his chariot gets stuck in the mud. He runs away. As he's off running in the hills, he comes to the tent of this woman named Jael. I remember Jael is the wife of Heber, who we saw back in verse 11. And generally, there was peace between the Kenites and King Jabin. So Sisera, he thinks that he's in the tent of an ally here. And Giles says to Sisera, ah, come on inside. I'll hide you. No one's going to think to look for you in the tent of a woman. And so he comes inside, and it says that she covers him with a rug. And once he's all snuggled up, he says, listen, I've been fighting and running all day. I'm super thirsty. Can I have a, can I have a glass of water? And Giles says, sure. And what does she do? Brings him a nice warm cup of milk. Yum. Chapter 5, verse 24 says, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of twin dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. So apparently it wasn't just milk. It was milk with stuff floating in it. Especially good. Jael brings Sisera a nice warm bowl of cottage cheese. Now think about the situation here. This fellow, Sisera, he's exhausted, makes his way into her tent. She covers him up with a blanket. He gets all snuggled up, nice and warm, has a nice glass of warm milk. What do you think happens next? He drifts off to sleep. He falls asleep. Verse 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer with her hand. And she went softly to him. She tiptoed and drove a peg into his temple until it went down into the ground where he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And he died. Yes, that's a little bit of an understatement, isn't it? And chapter five and verse 26, it says this. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She stuck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. You see what happened? And Sisera falls fast asleep. And Jael, she like tiptoes over, kind of just to check on him. And then she takes a hammer, a mallet, and a big old tent spike. She puts it right up against it. Crack, crack, crack! Drives it through his head all the way into the ground. That's brutal, isn't it? That's savage. I was going to try to make a reference to MC Hammer and Hammer Time. 
but I felt like I was going to go over most of your guys' heads, so, I, so I'm skipping that. I'm just, I'm just letting you know that that reference is in my mind. <laughs> Hammer time. Hammer time. <laughs> but notice, Deborah the prophetess's prediction came true. This other woman got the glory for killing Sisera rather than Barak. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you're seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. What a tale. A couple more verses I want to look at in chapter five before we close. It says, Then Deborah and Baruch, the son of Abinam, on that day, said that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Deborah says, look, all this happened on chapter four, this great victory, this great battle, it all happened because leaders among God's people led. Leaders stood up and they fulfilled their calling and the people followed. I heard someone compare this once to an orchestra. You know, if you ever go to the symphony, there's the conductor and there's the musicians, right? There's the leader of the band and there's the people playing the music. And, and both are necessary for the concert, right? If there's no conductor, nobody plays. Or if they do play, they're not playing together. But if there's no musicians, it's just a guy up there waving a stick around. Nothing happens. And the idea is this, in the house of God, there needs to be people who are called by God and are willing to stand up and lead God's people. And there also need to be people who are willing to follow, who are willing to submit to leadership, to do what God asks of them, right? Church isn't performers and spectators, Church isn't me and the worship team up here on stage and you guys out there. It isn't like a theater or, or, or a concert. Paul talks about it and he says that we are, that we are co-laborers. We labor together for the cause of Christ, for the kingdom of God. And Deborah here, she gives a little insight in the next couple verses on what it was like in the days when she took up that mantle of leadership. She says, in the days of Shamgar, remember he was the guy with the big stick, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. Deborah says, things were so bad at this point in Israel that no one wanted to travel on the main roads. They were all afraid of getting attacked. She says they took secret paths and, and trails to get where they were going. And she says village life ceased. People were, were so terrified that they didn't even want to leave their homes anymore. Israel was in a rough place. 
And then Deborah says, and the Lord called me to defend the people like a mother defends her young. I like the picture there. And then she closes out in verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. Deborah finishes her song. She says, Lord, may all your enemies be defeated like, like Jabin and Sisera were. And let your friends be like the sun, rising higher and higher. And he says, the land had rest for 40 years. As we close, I just want to point this out. It's been said that, that Sisera was a metaphor, right? A type of sin in the life of a believer. Right? And just as Sisera wanted to take refuge in Jael's tent, sin wants to take refuge in our lives. Sin wants to hide itself away in our lives. And remember Sisera, after he gets situated in the tent, after he gets all snuggled up and warm, after he gets comfortable, he asks for a glass of water. And likewise, sin it takes root in your life and then it starts asking things of you. Sin wants to be satisfied. Sin wants to be satiated. Sin, once it takes root, it always, always, always wants more. It begins to manifest itself. Sin always wants to be sustained. Sisera asks for water and Jael gives him a glass of milk instead. Again, sin wants to be satisfied. And we need to reply to those requests with the word of God. We need to put those requests to sleep with the word of God. But in order to do that, we need to be a people who are in the word of God, who are studying the word of God, who know the word of God. Spurgeon, who actually came up with this whole little typology here, he said this, there is enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. That's rough, isn't it? There's enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. Some of us are so negligent with the word of God. Some of our Bibles are so dust covered from lack of use that our souls are in peril. The second lesson is like Jael in relation with Sisera, we need to be ruthless with the sin in our lives. We need to kill it. We need to put to death the sin in our lives. Scripture says that we need to murder the flesh. Paul says in Romans 8, 13 in the King James, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, ye shall live. In ESV it says, for if you live according to the Spirit, you will die. But if, the, if, the, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And I like the King James where it talks about mortifying the flesh. Because the idea there is, is, is to murder it, to put it to death, to kill it. And Paul says in Romans chapter 13 and verse 12, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And I like that idea. Make no provision for the flesh. Right? Don't, don't give it quarter. Don't, don't allow sin to take root in a little unseen corner of your life. Paul says you need to kill it. You need to murder it. You need to put it to death. You need to put to death the natural man and its sinful desires and walk in the spirit. I think that's the heart of the lesson there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's such a weird passage of scripture, but there are some great lessons for us there, Lord. And we pray that, that we would learn those lessons, and that we would put to flesh the old man, put, put to death the old man, rather, put to death the flesh. And Lord, that we would walk in the spirit, that we would walk with you, and that we would humbly serve you. We just surrender our lives to you. And those of us that are called to lead, we pray that you would help us to lead with humility. And those who are called to follow, we pray you'd help us to, to follow with humility as well. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.